My name is Karen Kilby, and I'm the Dean Professor of Catholic Theology, one of the members of staff in the Center for Catholic Studies. And it's a very great pleasure to be able to introduce our Catholic Theology Research Seminar today, which is also our annual Teilhard Lecture, and to introduce Carmen Gray um, doing both of those things. So um, Carmody has had such a breadth of life and experience that uh, I need to consult my notes to cover all the things Carmody has done. So Carmody's been with us for a few years here in Durham. Um, and the uh, title of our talk today is Life in the Human and the Non-Human, Theology and Phenomenology. So I just want to say a little bit about the suitability to this being the Teilhard Lecture, and I think the first element of suitability is obviously, if you know anything about Teilhard de Chardin, you know that he's got hugely wide-ranging intellectual vistas that unite um, theology and science uh, and think about big questions like life. But in particular, I think of all my colleagues, Carmody is the most Teilhard-shaped, not in the sense that Carmody writes about or agrees with Teilhard, but that her own interests have something of the of the range, um, yeah, of, of a very impressive range uh, that mimics Teilhard, who was a paleontologist and a geologist, as well as a Jesuit and a, a theologian, writing very influential books. So, Carmody's education began uh, with a theology degree from Oxford, and then an MPhil from theology in theology and religion from Cambridge, where the focus was actually um, on uh, Buddhist ontology and epistemology, and took her into learning Sanskrit and so on. So Teilhard, I don't know how deeply he engaged with Eastern thought, but he certainly spent a lot of time in China and so on. So there's this kind of geographical range that they share. Um, Carmody also has a postgraduate certificate in biodiversity and ecosystems from um, Edinburgh. So she's uh, a rare theology colleague with actual some official formal study of science. She's done a distance learning MA in philosophical and systematic theology at Nottingham and her PhD under Gavin de Costa at Bristol. Um, so just in the intellectual range, but also in some of the areas of Carmody's interest, there's a Herodian quality, um, interest in nature and environment alongside philosophy and theology, but um, theology and philosophy and the sciences. Uh, maybe you can't blame Teilhard for not having got an interest in artificial intelligence uh, <laughs> back then. Maybe you can blame him for not having got Carmody's interest in philosophy and ethics of economics. I'm not blaming him, but that, that was some kind of thing. But I'm not, I'm not sure I've come across Teilhard moving into economics, but that we have a Teilhard for our own time in some ways in Carmody's breadth of interest. And also I think the really striking thing about Teilhard for some of my generations to see how the previous generation was actually riveted by him. And he's the only theologian that my father read and lots of people I know. So he was somebody who spoke to a wide range of people and Carmody is building towards that range very rapidly and the she's widely in demand in a whole range of um, public speaking engagements. So um so it's a great pleasure to have you speaking and I'm particularly looking forward to hearing this paper. Thanks Marty. Um, thank you very much, Karen. I feel that it's extremely daunting to be introduced um, as in any way comfortable to say the showdown, but I'm, I'm very honoured. And um, greetings to everybody online, and I hope that you can see and hear me okay, and please do send some kind of signal if you if you need me to change my uh, my angle or anything like that. Um, so I'm not speaking about Teo today, but I am um, I am speaking about something that Teo was extremely concerned about, which is um, the significance of evolution roughly speaking, or well, the significant of evolutionary uh, models for understanding in particular human being. Um, and this is this is a part of the research that I've been doing this year. I'm just coming up to the end of the year of, of research leave. Um, it's an attempt to represent quite a lot of work in a rather small time. And I've compressed it um, in order to cut it down to size. And I hope it's not too compressed to be followable. And I've also tried to de-philosophize it a little bit, make it a little bit less um, technical. Um, one final word of introduction. Lo loads of the public work that I do, um, it looks very diverse on the surface. 
But underneath, there's a kind of consistent philosophical or theological concern, which I think is, is about the right way of thinking about a human being, or the right way of thinking about human. Um, and I've done loads of public work over the past few years, but haven't really had the opportunity to do a sustained philosophical engagement um, that would address the underlying issues. And this is me beginning to do that. It's just the beginning. What you're going to hear is a kind of scoping of some of what I've done and what I would like to do. There is a crisis in the idea of the human. The nature and even the existence of the human is in question from every side. At the same time, the standing of the human within the wider order of the world and the living world in particular has never been asked to bear more weight. Martin Buber argued that philosophical anthropology, so the philosophical inquiry into the nature of the human, is only possible in epochs of what he calls homelessness. These are eras in which human beings are so estranged from the world that they become a question to themselves. This is Buber. A philosophical anthropology, he said, is not possible unless it begins from the anthropological question. It can be attained, a philosophical anthropology, only by a formulation of this question, which is more profound, sharp, strict, and cruel than it has ever been before. In this paper, we're returning to a period in which such a homelessness was diagnosed by a new generation of thinkers who have uh, been almost completely neglected in the century since. This was a period, so a century ago, in which man, and I will, by the way, use the word man because that's how he was first the human, a period in which man became, and I'm quoting, one of the more of a problem to himself than ever before in all recorded history. In the present, the question of the human arises, I think, more sharply still than it did in 1928, when Max Scheler and his peer and also rival, Helmut Plessner, posed this question. Our sense of our place in the cosmos, our relationship to non-human life and intelligence, the source and the nature of our responsibilities and our significance is under yet more pressure. As the sense of homelessness deepens, circumstances raise the stakes as to how we answer it. And yet contemporary philosophy has no patience for it, for this question, doubting even the sensibleness of the question. This crisis in the idea of the human, it deserves a lot of unpacking. I'm not going to do that now. We wouldn't have time to get on to the, these, these figures that I want to talk about. Um, so this is a, this is a, a very short overview of, of some of what I think is going on in, in the sources of this crisis. The crisis in the idea of the human has been to a significant degree driven by changed conditions of what counts as knowledge. That is, a new consensus about the methods we need to use to access the truth about things. The kind of thinking, the mode of investigation, which can claim competence to define the nature and standing of the human is no longer philosophy or theology now, but biology. The controversy originally of the theory of evolution was focused not so much on conceptions of biblical authority, although that was an issue, but the concern was, was greater about its effect on the nature and dignity of the human. Evolution by common descent suggested the kinship of human beings with the rest of nature. And in doing so, challenged easy assumptions of human uniqueness. If human beings evolve in continuity with the organic world, then the difference of human beings from other species could only be a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. Human beings are then suggested to be fundamentally the same sort of thing as other organisms. The two centuries since have seen the explosion of forms of scientific explanation, which seem to give a complete account of the human in just the same naturalistic terms in which the rest of the world is explained. Chemical, physical, biological, psychological, and social modes of explanation, which account for all that is distinctive about the human, revealing the continuity of the human with nature at large. The new biology, 
and it was new, of course, so young science, uh, understood itself as a physical science with a mechanistic metaphysics and an epistemology that was essentially reductionist. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's a very widely used word around reductionism. I'll explain what I mean by that. The notion of life was emptied of distinctive content. In the explanatory framework of modern biology, that which seems to be alive is in reality no different from inanimate phenomena. It derives seamlessly from the merely material and inanimate, both temporally and spatially. In other words, both in terms of the history of evolution and also in terms of being made out of the same sort of stuff. To get to the heart of this, we need to think about a little bit about what the notion of explanation is. What counts as a true explanation of something reveals what the explainers take to be given, to be assumable, in such a way that it can be unproblematically relied upon, and it can therefore be used to do the explaining, rather than being the thing that needs to be explained. So, to put it more colloquially, we account for what is not obvious in terms of what is obvious. We account for what is not given, or what seems not to be given in terms of that which is given. In the new science of biology, the lifeless is the obvious and the given, the assumed. That which seems alive is just a deceptive arrangement of that which is lifeless. That which seems purposeful is only a deceptive arrangement of that which is purposeful. The apparent self-moving and purposeful activity of living beings is an illusion arising from contingent configurations of matter, which, if they're arranged in the right way, simply appear to have these properties. As biology established itself as a positive and empirical and independent science, with ever-growing explanatory power, it claimed the human as its object, exhaustively knowable under its categories. Philosophers addressing the nature of the human in the age of biology, and I should add, of course, theologians as well, are forced to handle this claim, and in doing so, to confront the relationship between scientific and other modes of knowing and explaining. The question of the human thus converges with the question of the purpose and scope of what is called in German the Geisteswissenschaft, the humanities. Right. At this stage, a fork in the road presents itself as to how we construe the, 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 the nature of the Geisteswissenschaft. Either one can delineate a domain for the Geisteswissenschaft in which its own characteristic mode of knowing is warranted and authoritative. So I'm talking about the modes of knowing characteristic of the humanities. A mode of knowing which is appropriate to grasping the objects of Geist, the objects of mind and spirit. The human as a cultural, social, artistic being who narrates the world and life, who feels, who asks about the meaning of things, and so on. Here, life, the concept of life and the concept of the human, are considered as legitimately graspable through social, linguistical, and historical dimensions. In this kind of view, the physical sciences might be considered as occupying a particular place with more or less autonomy. But the point is the Geisterstitian chapter are legitimate. Or one can privilege the knowledge of the physical sciences and deprive to other modes of knowing any authority or the legitimacy of their own methods. That kind of view takes philosophy to be an extension of the physical sciences, filling in the gaps left by empirical research until that research is maybe one day complete. In an age of biology, this kind of position ends up as what we might call biology. When applied to the question of the human, it reduces all anthropological terms to biological terms. Darwin's key claim. The difference in mind between man and the higher animals, great as it is, is certainly one of degree and not of kind. Judging by the contemporary, the situation in contemporary philosophy, engagement with biological science philosophically seems to lead almost irresistibly to this conclusion. This view that philosophy is really just filling in the gaps left by empirical sciences is a, is a position held by almost all philosophers of biology. The attraction of adopting one or other of these two positions, either the guys in the Schaft have their legitimacy, absolutely, or they don't, is that one can give a unitary account of knowing. 
unless one opts decisively for one or the other, the relation between the different modes of knowing still needs to be spelled out. One is forced to a more taxing specification of what it is to know when one acknowledges the validity of both modes. Knowing can then become an equivocal term, endangering the original ambition of knowledge itself, which is to give a satisfactory overall account of why and what something is. This forces us back onto the original epistemological question. What is to count as the explanandum versus the explanans? That is, what is to do the explaining and what is it to be explained? What is, what is to be explained? Or to put it most simply, what are the terms of knowing? Any construal of this relationship between physical sciences and the humanities has metaphysical implications. Understandings of how knowledge works are not simply procedural. They are performances of divergent suppositions about what there is to be known. A recognition of the natural sciences as the normative mode of knowledge is, of course, suggestive of the view that reality is exhaustively accounted for by natural things, that's what we call naturalism. A refusal that those sciences offer exhaustive accounts of reality is accompanied usually by the acknowledgement of a, of a dimension to the real that is not exhausted by their methods. There really is no such thing as methodological naturalism. All naturalisms are ontological because ways of knowing presuppose and imply accounts of what there is. Max Scheler and Helmut Plessner were the leading lights of an early 20th century movement whose creativity in engaging this confrontation between different modes of knowing and its consequences has been strangely neglected. Helmut Plessner characterized our age like this. Every age has its own catchword. Progress in the 18th century, development in the 19th, and in the 20th, something incontestable that can only be grasped prior to all ideologies, to God and to the state, to nature and history, something from which all ideologies perhaps arise and by which they will just as certainly be devoured in turn, namely life itself. No modern thinker, he said, can in the end avoid thinking when it comes to the essentials of his worldview as a Darwinist thinks. And none can therefore avoid asking what this means for the interpretation of the human. This is the question that these two thinkers address themselves to. We can frame this confrontation in terms of a couple of questions. I had a whole list of questions, but I've tried to reduce that to two. What are the consequences of framing the human within the organic realm versus over against it? As something different. A, B, these are really different versions of the same question. How far does the category of the organic, the category of life itself, go in elucidating what is human about the human? So, turning to these two, two characters, 1928 saw the publication of two seminal texts, which are not, not at all discussed in uh, Anglophone scholarship. Max Schaler's The Place of Man in the Cosmos, these are the English titles, they're both written down, and Helmut Plessner's Levels of the Organic and the Human. Plessner and Schaler were both responding to new intellectual and social conditions. The arrival of evolutionism in the philosophical scene at the end of the 19th century destabilized a settled Enlightenment anthropology and what remained of an accepted religious order. But reductionism and mechanism, having been very popular at the end of the 19th century, were subject to intense questioning at the start of the 20th century for various reasons. The Leben's philosophy of Henri Bergson, vitalism in biology, Gestalt psychology, and new discoveries in, in what was then the new science of ethology, the study of animal behavior, about the intelligence of primates, all seem to suggest that the, that the distinction between Geist and Nature, between the objects of these traditionally different sciences, um, was not as binary as it might have seemed. In the social sphere, rapid industrialization, political revolution, new collectivisms, an economic order characterized by mass production and consumption, and then, of course, experiences of mass extermination in World War I, all posed unprecedented questions to the dominant concept of the human. There's loads to say about the context of these things. It's a very compressed, but, uh, 
version of events, but they really lived at a, um, a time when everything seemed up in the air. Against this background, Scheler and Plessner developed a new paradigm for thinking about the human. This has come to be known, and this is only in the last few years, but it's only made its way into English language scholarship in the last few years. This has come to be known as philosophical anthropology with capital letters. That's to be distinguished from philosophical anthropology with small letters, which just means philosophical questioning about the human. When it's with capital letters, it refers to this, this new and particular paradigm. A combination of intellectual and historical circumstance had largely hidden this paradigm from the view of Anglophone scholarship. Plessner's magnum opus was almost completely ignored at the time of its original publication and for decades afterwards. It didn't enter international conversation until just a few years ago. It was translated for the first time in 2019, sorry, that's 90 years after its original publication. Even in Germanophone contexts, the work of Plessner met with enormous resistance from Heidegger and his school, which was, of course, very uh, influential at the time. While Max Scheler had more success, his impact was strangely limited, despite Heidegger estimating him as the greatest living force in philosophy of his time. I can't resist reading this to you. Uh, this is just from one of the, the, the few English language works on Scheler. Max Scheler was acclaimed in Europe after the First World War as one of the leading minds of the modern age and Germany's most brilliant thinker. But within a few years of his death, he became, at least publicly, a forgotten man. These inauspicious beginnings seemed confirmed when in the 1970s, philosophical anthropology was pronounced obsolete in Germany. Its alleged anthropocentrism made it supposedly unfit for an age in which, as Foucault said, man has ended. But Habermas, among others, have lately recognized that the paradigm represented by philosophical anthropology has a timeliness which entirely belies its marginal status. The parallel between the questions and tasks of our contemporary time and those of the philosophical anthropologists a century ago are finally starting to be recognized. These thinkers, Scheler and Plessner, were of course not distinguished by their concern with the human as such. The reassessment of the meaning and standing of the human is characteristic of most of the major thinkers of this period. Marx, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and so on. Against this background, philosophical anthropology with capital letters represents a distinct sensibility in two broad ways. Firstly, it was distinguished neither by a flat-out rejection of evolutionist and naturalist paradigms in science and philosophy, nor by a surrender to those modes of understanding as uniquely authoritative for defining the human. So neither acceptance nor surrender to evolutionism. Secondly, it was, sorry, neither rejection nor, nor surrender. Secondly, it was distinguished neither by an easy assumption that it makes sense to speak of something called human nature that has a real essence, nor by the indignant rejection of such a possibility. So thinkers at this time, right, Hume and Kant and Hegel uh, assumed that we could speak about human nature, Nietzsche and Marx roughly believed that we couldn't. The philosophical anthropologists are, are, are plotting a middle way there, and they're also plotting a middle way between the rejection of naturalism and the um, surrender to naturalism. Philosophical anthropology is a middle way between naturalism and culturalism as for the human, and between the apparently alternative modes of explanation characteristic of the Naturwissenschaft and the Geisterwissenschaft. Both as to method as to and as to content, it refuses these alternatives as only apparent. The central preoccupation of this new paradigm was a question which seemed even a century ago already old-fashioned. The question of the unique position, the Sonderstellung of the German, of the human within the order of living things. Scheler and Plessner accepted the task which Western philosophy had since antiquity made its own, a clarification of the position of man in the world. So a word about methodology. The title of, of, of this paper has the word phenomenology in it, and I'm not going to talk about phenomenology very much, but I'm going to try and explain why these two thinkers are best thought of as phenomenologists. With the ascendancy of evolutionism, the dominant tendency was to eliminate the specificity of the human by incorporating it without remainder into the organic continuum. The older order had sought to define the human by its difference from other creatures, whether that was by reason or the imago Dei, 
the new Darwinian order, in contrast, accepted the total explanatory and descriptive adequacy of biology and defined the human by its indistinguishability from other animals, except in degree. Plessner and Scheller demonstrated their readiness to work within this new order by situating their accounts of the human within treatments of the organic realm, quite similar to Aristotle. They tried to talk about the human with reference to plants and animals. We must begin, said Plessner, by clarifying what can be described as alive before further steps are taken to develop a theory of man. Man and life must be encompassed under the same theory, they think. And life here is not a speculative uh, or intuitive object, as it might be with the Elan Vital um, as a kind of abstract principle of existence. Life really means for them something concrete and empirical and ordinary, as when I say this table is not alive, but I am alive. The aim for them is, and this is a quote, Plessner again, to arrive at a unified theory wherein a non-reductive concept of man in nature, achieved within an inclusive theory of life, is capable of dealing with the contrast between plants, animals, and man. In an age in which evolutionism had given naturalism an almost irresistible force, Scheler and Plessner found themselves comp compelled to address it. But unlike a plain naturalistic evolutionism, they engaged the wider world of life in such ways to reveal the human as an expressive minded being whose relationship to herself and the world marks her out decisively from other animals. In the human, they think, there is a dimension of reality that flows over and stretches beyond while being inseparable from its biological nature. The philosophical anthropologists take up the instruments of phenomenology in order to capture the irreducibility of first-person experience. It is an anti-Cartesian methodology, which aims to bring together objective and subjective dimensions of reality. And this, I think, is the source of their kind of revolutionary power. They refuse, and this is the key point as the method, they refuse the absolute dichotomy of inner and outer. This is a, a commentator on philosophical theology who puts it extremely well. Is there, in reality, the strong disjunction envisaged by Cartesian thought between the inner and the outer aspect of living things? For Descartes himself, of course, such a dichotomy obtains, in fact, only in the case of human beings. Animals, let alone plants, are simply machines. In our case, an inner non-material soul has been mysteriously added. Within the Cartesian heritage, which is the principal heritage of the modern intellect as such, there is no alternative for any form of life except to be either a mere body completely spread out, uh, either a mere body spread out in space, which is completely external, or a bit of subjectivity completely and secretly within, or an unintelligible combination of the two, which would be the human. It is this conceptual foundation which has, until our own time, made a rational foundation for the biological and social sciences impossible. Scheler and Plessner aim to offer just such a rational foundation by attending to the unity of inner and outer. They attend to the fact that we know only exclusively as creatures with an inner experiencing an outer. Anthropology, they think, therefore, is in some sense the actual form of knowledge itself. Could you go to the next slide? I really don't have a um, presentation, but I think it's nice if you could see these people, but then they sound like they're more than just minds. Does it sound like Um, I'm not, of course, going to explain the whole picture that Plessner gives. I'm just going to focus on how he thinks about what a human being is. Helmut Plessner argues that what distinguishes the living is the way in which the inner and outer relate. Physical objects for which this is Plessner, sorry, this is a bit, this is a bit um, technical, so just stay with me. It's not, it's not very long. I'm trying to cut it down slides, just to give you a taste of how it's thinking. Physical objects for which a fundamentally divergent relationship between outer and inner objectively figures as part of their being are called living. That's his criterion of being alive. His key concept, therefore, for the identification of the living 
is the concept of boundary, because a boundary is what distinguishes inner and outer. I'll just try and explain this bit. In the case of an, of an inanimate object, there is no difference between the object's boundary and the object's border. The edge of the object does not belong to the object. It is simply the between the object and the environment. A boundary is indistinguishable from a border in the case of an inanimate object. For a living thing, its boundary is not simply an arbitrary line in space where this type of matter happens to stop and another type of matter happens to start, as is the case with this table. The edge of a living body is not merely a border, it is its boundary and it is its boundary. This boundary belongs to the body, not to the environment. This edge is no longer the place of a symmetrical relationship inside this table, it's table matter and outside the table it's air matter. Because the boundary, it is the, 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 the relationship has become completely asymmetrical between inner and outer. Because the boundary belongs to the living body itself, it makes sense to speak of the body as having a center, as having its being, within itself. The organism has a wholeness in the sense of having a centre that is everywhere and nowhere. This is how Plessner puts it. It is a core which transcends spatiality and at the same time controls the spatiality of the body whose core it is. This generates Plessner's key term, positionality, as the basic category of life itself. When a body is alive, it does not simply occupy space in a particular location. Positionality signifies the way in which, this is Plessner again, an organism takes its place in an environment, arises in it, is dependent on it, and yet opposes itself to it. In the context of organismic life, the human distinctive is found in the kind of positionality it has, the way in which it relates to its boundary, to its to itself, basically. The human distinction, in other words, this is important, is not simply that we have an inner life, a non-spatial center. All animal organisms have this. They have an inner life. And actually, Plessner says plants do as well. That's what Plessner calls centric positionality, the kind that animals have. The distinction is that the non-human animal is not aware of having this inner life, this center. But the human, in contrast, cannot help standing over against its own center and experiencing itself from a distance. He says, we not only have an inner life distinct from, though not separable from, our physical existence, we stand over against both of these, holding them apart from one another and yet together. Don't worry if this seems very obscure. It's quite a difficult thought. This standing out of my center while being centered and only by virtue of my centeredness is what is captured by Plessner with the notion of eccentric positionality. That's what he calls the distinctive kind of positionality. This is the quality of the organism, right? Is to be positioned, to be a, a subjectivity with a position, with a center. All organisms have positionality. What the human has is eccentric positionality. In the human, this is how Plessner puts it. In the human, the organism has become conscious of the centrality of its existence. It has itself. It knows itself. It notices itself. And this makes it an I. This I is the vanishing point of its own interiority that lies behind it. It is removed from its own center in every possible execution of life and is the observer of the scene of this inner field. It is the subject pole that can no longer be objectified or put into the object position. For Plessner, to be eccentrically positioned means that while remaining an animal, the human is detached from a purely local identity. It is captured, this is the easiest way of capturing it, I think, by the distinction between being a body and having a body. All animals are their bodies. But in the case of a human being, we are our body, I am my body, but I also have my body. That is to say, I know that I'm a body. I experience my embodiedness as though from the outside. 
from a position projected beyond my embodiment, looking back at myself. I am out of, this is the key paradox that he's aiming at, I am out of my centre only through being in my centre. It's only as this particular kind of organism that I, it's only as that particular kind of organism that I can both be myself and be beyond another world looking back at myself. So, sorry, this is extremely compressed, but I, I'm just trying to give you a flavour of how he thinks. This enables Plessner to, to, to make the human wholly biological, but then to use that to accentuate and not diminish human exceptionality. So this is my way of putting it, not his. It's as though the human Sonderstellung, the human unique position, is its intensification of the quality of being an organism. A human is, so to speak, not less of an organism, but more of one. More defined by what is most characteristic of organicity, namely the distinction between inner and outer. With this move, uh, sorry, Plessner establishes a bridgehead across the Cartesian divide. The human difference is real, it is qualitative, it is qualitative, and it is of decisive significance, but it is not substantialized. It is a difference produced by being more and not less of what other organisms already are. This is a difference in and not in spite of continuity. The human is not only an object of science, she is not only a subject of consciousness, she is always both at exactly the same time. So that's Plethner. Sheila, I think, is a bit simpler, partly because I've dealt with him rather more briefly. Um, some of you might have come across Sheila in the context of John Paul II. Sheila was a very significant influence uh, on John Paul II's development of theological personalism. Um, and his theory of the person is the most known part of his work. But his theory of the person is actually founded in this underlying anthropology that hasn't been much discussed. The defining quality of biological life, of something that is alive, for Shela, is what he calls Lebensdrang, so that's life urge, right, or life impulsion in German. The human being is wholly animated by this Lebensdrang, just like all other organisms. Shela was very influenced by idealism, and so for him, this is really quite a bold thing to say. Shela acknowledges the human being as, in every regard, an animal. He absorbs the naturalistic description of the human brought through the theory of evolution, and he draws repeatedly on the sciences as evidence for the unity of the living, the unity of the organic, all characterized by this, this force, this energy, Levenstrang. Scheller was so serious about the scientific description of the human that Heidegger actually accused him of biologists. He said, Scheller says, man has in no way evolved beyond the animal world. He was an animal, he is an animal, and he will always remain an animal. Scheller says that Descartes destroyed the possibility of understanding the human at all by removing the characteristic, characteristic humanness from the animal realm. But while acknowledging the full animality of the human, Scheller finds human uniqueness in a dimension which cannot be captured or even detected by the empirical sciences. It's very different from Plessner. I'm treating them both together, but they're really different things. A dimension which cannot be captured or even detected by the empirical sciences, and this is what he calls the dimension of spirit. Guys, spirit has no, all readers of Teilhard be aware at this point. Spirit has no continuity whatsoever with the biological, for sure. It does not arise from evolution. It is not emergent from matter. And the human is already a psychophysical whole, psychophysical whole, already a minded animal without ever invoking spirit. Spirit is not a refinement of Lebensraum. It is not the highest instance of Lebensraum. Spirit is completely autonomous from Lebensraum. But without Lebensraum, this is probably, you might find this a rather strange idea, but don't worry about that for a minute. <laughs> Without Lebensraum, which is the fundamental source of drive and energy, spirit is completely impotent. Spirit and life are two cosmic principles which spring forth from the ground of, of all things. And only in the human they meet and they subsist together. 
and in the human spirit functions to guide and direct Lebensraum. Schiller's theory of the person, which as I said is really the influential part of his work, expresses this understanding. Personhood for him is not constituted either by consciousness or bodiliness, and this is an important warning to contemporary people who are seeking after empirical features to ground personhood. Um, yes, there's lots to say about that, but let's not go distracted. Um, Schiller says the essence of the person, very strange claim, the essence of the person is psychophysically indifferent. Personhood, which is what distinguishes human beings, is not real in the sense of being a thing or a substance. It exists only as acting. A person for Scheler, this is actually how Heidegger described it, how Heidegger described Scheler's thought, is no thing and can never become an it. A person can never become an it. Rather, the person is the unitary core of inner and outer. You notice again this bringing together of the inner and the outer, which is the executor of all acts. For Scheler, it is spirit that allows the human to perceive an objective hierarchy of values. This constitutes what he calls Weltoffenheit, world openness, as a unique possibility of personhood. Why? Well, an animal has an environment, but a human being has a world. Some of you might be thinking immediately of Hannah Arendt, who was, of course, also a disciple of Heidegger. Um, a human being has a world, not an environment, because, this is the key claim, but the things can exist for her which are not related to the physiological or psychic drives. She can perceive significances that transcend those drives. That is to say, she can be motivated not by Lebensraum, but by spirit. She can steer and shape the impulsion of life, which is in her, towards higher or lower values. The task of the human being is defined by this co-presence of these two principles, spirits and Lebensraum. The human is therefore ultimately a microcosm in which the spiritual and the vital meet. And the human vocation, the, the, to quote the title of the book, the place of man in the cosmos is to spiritualize life by channeling the energy of Lebensraum towards the values from the spirits. The highest value in the hierarchy uh, for Scheller is the value of the sacred. And that value arises in the context of spirit, not in the context of life. Okay, there's loads to say that we can comment on this, but really I just want to pick up on a few uh, aspects of their, of their thoughts that I think are interesting. Thinking about our own time. Our own time has something in common with the time of Plessner and Scheler, but also presents new features. In terms of basic philosophical options, I think our own moment is quite similar. We have moved surprisingly not that far in 100 years. Culturalism and naturalism are still both popular. Life is considered alternatively as a naturalistic given or as a cultural construct. Culturalism, roughly speaking, there's no different word for this, but let's call it culturalism. We might call it Foucaultism. Um, that might give you a bit more of a flavor. Uh, takes it that there is no fixed or given basis for biological life, rather life itself is a construction of society and culture. Running in parallel to this, and never really touching it, is a kind of naturalist neo-Darwinism, which is now buttressed by empirical psychology and neuroscience. This generates accounts of thought and language as epiphenomena of a blind, blind process of biological evolution. In the first case, there is nothing except the culturally constructed, and that includes biology. A lot of so-called sociology of science is chasing rabbit, so to speak. Um, in the first case, that's the first case. In the latter case, there is only nature, and human cultural making, cultural activity, is just an expression of nature. This nature-culture binary has not been resolved, but as I said, I think it's actually deepened since the time of Schiller. So that's a sense in which our age is similar. In another sense, our age is different. The place occupied by the human in the wider order of the living world has a new weight. We appear at the same time as more biological because we're utterly dependent on the ecological milieu. Uh, we know that more finely and sensibly than we did 100 years ago. But we also seem less biological because we uniquely possess the power to modify and possibly even to totally shatter that milieu. 
the conversation about the nature of the human and about human uniqueness and the human place in the order of life is strangely primitive, I think, when it's set against the technical proficiency that characterizes our relationship with nature. A tiny cameo of what I think the current options are in this landscape. Some are defending the view that the human is just another animal. So that narrative leaves no language for recognizing unique human responsibilities. It's then unable to grapple meaningfully with the fact that we have a singular power over nature. Others within the same framework of biologism are trying to attach human uniqueness, supposed human uniqueness, to specific features or properties of the human, empirically identified. This enterprise, I think, is foundering on a large number of rocks and won't survive very long. Uh, our behavioral continuities with non-human animals, which we know more and more uh, is the case, um, mounting evidence of, of continuous human evolution from earlier hominids, and recently even on, on the new field of exobiology, which is suggesting that intelligence could evolve on, on the planets. The dominant non-naturalistic alternative, non-biologistic alternative, is to deny that humans have any permanent fellowship with the organic world at all. This is a kind of trans or post-humanist vision where the human is only temporarily and not essentially biological. And we're simply anticipating liberation from the biological order. Philosophical anthropology refuses these options as a totally false choice. Naturalism versus culturalism. The human is just an animal versus the human is not really an animal like other animals at all. It is a third way which seeks to establish a continuity in discontinuity and a discontinuity in continuity. Scheler and Plechner take it as their starting point that we have to conceptualize the human in and not apart from its biological character. They do not contest the legitimacy of the natural, natural scientific account of the human. It's axiomatic for them that man, quote, is fully and in every way an animal. But they refuse naturalistic ontologies, which are incapable of accounting for first person subjective experience, that is to say, the reality of the inner and the outer in the same place. To use Plessner's terms, a purely naturalistic world is centerless. Insofar as we adopt whatever view we have on the world, always and only from a concretely experienced center, a mechanistic view is actually incompatible with its own existence as a view. This centeredness, which is what Plessner calls it, or the presence of spirit, which is what Scheler called it, do not appear, these features do not appear in an empirical objective schema because they are available only from the first person point of view. I think that our ecological age needs two things with no but. Two claims with no but between them. Both that we are indissolubly bound to living nature and that we are separate from nature. It is this both and that is missing in, as far as I can tell, nearly all of environmental philosophy and theology and ethics. They tend to just pick one and then they go for it. Plessner and Scheler break the stalemate of continuity versus discontinuity in accounting for human difference. They take the organism seriously, but they avoid the pitfalls, as in they take our organicity seriously, but they avoid the pitfalls which usually result from the seriousness, the homogeneity of naturalism and the denial of the human difference, or the pinning, at, pinning down of that difference to isolated empirical features of humans. Now I'm going to get a bit uh, critical, and this is a bit unfair because I don't have time to defend what I'm about to say, but I'll just say it anyway, we can talk about it. From the Romantic movement, through Transcendentalism and into the New Age, the environmental movement has gone hand in hand with fostering narratives and practices in which the world of organic life is sacralized. In the contemporary context, such sacralizations of life are often seen to be part of a solution to our ecological problems. It is thought the value of the human is best seen as a dimension of the sacredness of life itself. There's a hostility towards thinking of the sacredness of the human as something different from the sacredness of nature. Shela, however, 
places the value of the human not in her belonging to the organic realm, but in her potential to transcend that realm. And then to spiritualize life. Life for Sheila is not already sacred. Life must become sacred. It must be made sacred by human agency. Only by that agency, that which with, with which life has no natural or intrinsic overlap, which is spirit, can come into harmony with it. This always requires for Sheila, this is an interesting dimension of this thought, a certain no-saying for Lebensdrang, a, a mastering and a channeling of the energy of life itself. As a microcosm for Sheila, the human has a definitive role and destiny, a vocation which arises as a consequence of the structure of our being. We don't have a choice about inheriting that vocation. It's part of the structure of us that we have spirit and life together. This, of course, naturally raises the question of whether Sheila diminishes life as a kind of this-worldly and lower thing in comparison to a higher world of spirit as though Sheila is a Gnostic. But I don't have time to talk about this length, but I think that's completely untrue. Without spirit, without life for Sheila, spirit can do nothing. Life for Sheila is not devalorized, it's differently valorized. Kletner has less affinity with something like vitalism than, than Sheda. He has less, it doesn't talk about Lebensraum. And he, but he also, he never opposes the uniqueness of the human to her being an organism in the same way that Sheda does. For Klesner, the, uni the uniqueness of the human just is her being an organism, but positioned in a specific way. In her eccentric positionality, the living world becomes her counterpart, something over against her. So here you, you get you get a game from a different angle and you get a sense of separateness. The human must take her place in the living world of which she is a part. Plessner doesn't speak in a general or normative sense of human vocation or destiny. He actually speaks about the continual construction of human identity in which we have to define and redefine our position because we're looking back at ourselves and we have to make something of ourselves continually. This is a combination of the given and the constructed. In refusing, this is the important thing, I think, as far as the applications to ecological and environmental theologies and philosophies and so on. They, Plessner and Scherler refuse to spiritualize life and embodiment per se, or to sacralize it. In a way, they both stand as stringent critiques of the options which are popularly offered in the contemporary landscape of environmental theology and ethics. They recognize that animality is a condition of unique possibility and capacity, but they don't sentimentalize it. Nor do they sentimentalize a supposed human unity with the wider world of life. Their anthropologies may seem rather existentialist with the emphasis on displacement for, for Plessner and with the emphasis on spirit's demand to rise above Lebensraum for Schäfer. But I think this is an important corrective to the romanticization which is often indulged by eco-theologies and nature spiritualities. In their haste, that is the contemporary movements, to create a spirituality um, of human solidarity with the world of living nature, which will supposedly convince us to stop destroying it. I'm not sure about that, but anyway, they can end up denying the ambiguity of organic life. A similar naivety, I'm making too many points briefly, so sorry about this. A similar naivety, I think, is evident in those who, whether for religious or secular purposes, spiritualize and sacralize embodiments itself and over-identify human beings with their bodies. As Sherlock and Plessner see it, it is not just as a consequence of sin or popular cultural alternatives, right? So this would be patriarchy or cultural imperialism or whatever. It's not just as a consequence of sin that the human being finds herself fractured and homeless and at odds with the world. And not fully at home in our bodies. This fractionless is not a consequence of sin. It's not a consequence of something having gone wrong for Shailen Plessner. Rather, they articulate alienation as intrinsic to humanness. That is, alienation both from the world of nature and alienation from myself. 
Whether they frame it in terms of spirit or in terms of eccentric positionality, they give us a language for expressing an enduring dimension of human experience, which is the experience of not being fully at home, of not being at one with nature, of not being at one with ourselves. Plessner and Scherler see in the human being an organism whose being must become. Her being is not finished and given. It is crafted. It is a product of labor, effort, choice, and growth. The real difference between them is that for Scherler, that growth can be measured against an objective standard, which is the, the, the hierarchy of spirit. Whereas for Plessner, notions of rightness can only ever arise in, in interpretive acts of the human by themselves. They don't have an objective or transcendent law. But in both cases, the human, and that's, by the way, I think a very significant difference. It's the most significant difference between them is Plessner doesn't recognize an objective norm, and Scheller does. But in both cases, the human experience itself is one of tautness, of suspension in the midst of an achievement, the outcome of which is completely uncertain, and which transcends the present reality of our, of our life, of our, of our organism. Humans are in a condition of painful ecstasis standing out of ourselves. What Plessner calls homo absconditus. In fact, Plessner says, man cannot be precisely defined. All attempts to reduce human nature to any seemingly decisive factors are doomed to fail. The relationship of the human to the world of nature and to ourselves is something to be defined and discovered. It isn't given. Even though my animality is given, but I must make something of my animality. I must find my place in the order of things. I must choose my identity in relation to life itself. This is also true for Shayla, even though Shayla thinks they're the right way of doing that, but we still have to do it. There's still our task. To be rather provocative, I think that recognizing this would save environmentalism from excessive romanticism and ethics, and in particular Christian ethics, uh, from blindness to the uncomfortable complexity of human identity, this combination of the given and the not given. So to conclude, very briefly, <clears throat> these accounts of the human, I think, echo defining aspects of our experience. The human is both natural and alienated. I have no choice about this condition as a human. The only choice I have is what to do about it. Klesner and Scheler seek to describe both what we have in common with other living things and what sets us apart without ever dividing these. They do not falsely engineer a unity or harmony between me and myself, me and my body, or me and nature. But neither do they divide or separate us from them, the human. We are not only biological, we are not only cultural, we are always both and we need to understand ourselves in both modes simultaneously. Despite these important strengths, what the two authors do not achieve is not a matter of secondary importance. They are unable to arrive at a concrete construal of life's positive content. What life is, so to speak, about. Something in life itself that would make a certain kind of response or construal from us, uniquely fitting to life. They cannot frame an intrinsic teleology of life. They cannot discover humanness as an appropriate fitting expression of the inner constitution and direction of the organic itself, in which life is really about something. This is ironic, by the way, because phenomenology is the, the, the philosophical discipline that takes intentionality to be the fundamental category, but they can't discover any intentionality in life itself. This cuts them off from being able to give a compelling account of two of the most fundamental aspects of human experience, evil and death. My own view is that the reasons for this inability are metaphysical. They cannot, first to say, they cannot identify a unity beyond oneness and twoness. I think that they can't think a unity that is not numerical. To put it in a theological way, I think they are unable to really think mediation because they do not have a concept of creation. 
but to pursue that critique would be the work of an old paper. Um, thank you so much, Conrad. That is an incredibly rich uh, multi levels and clear in itself, if not always clear to us. Uh, <laughs> paper. And I think the only reason it won't always become clear to us is that you had so much coming at us quite fast, and each individual bit were clear. The reason I mentioned that is I was beginning to think, I was thinking, oh, I would so love to have this paper, that I would so love to have the text. And then I see that kind of theme of the chat, um, sort of kind of universal recognition of. The richness and um, the desire that it can be published so that it can be available in some ways. Um, but that I was play, I was playing on the idea that God is um, the existence of God is intrinsically knowledgeable, but not so much that. Um, so yeah, so there's an awful lot there, which I think collectively we will follow, follow, and follow us will look better much of. Um, but it was a real banquet from ideas on a different level. So, anyways, I'm just giving, I'm just chatting with people at the time for most of their questions. So, and I could go into that situation or not. So, while people come up with questions, just say it will, this is in fact a shorter version of the chapter that we're published in a book, um, which, are, which is going to be called The Nature of Life, and which is associated with a Tampa Bundle publication run by China over here in Jarvis. Um, and the, the research that I did in this, that, that I presented here will be explained <laughs> in a much clearer sort of form in that chapter, which will be over twice the length and therefore more detailed and more spelled out and so on. So that those who are interested in following it up, um, it will be in the in the public realm in a much more um, full and detailed form in the next year or so. But I'm I'm also happy to send a text course there. Uh,